One of the verses that Pastor John will speak from this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As we approached prayer week and reflected on where do I go in the Bible this time, after about 26 or more messages on prayer over the years, I said, well, let's just stay with 1 Peter. We've been here since September. Where does 1 Peter talk about prayer? And there are three verses in 1 Peter that talk about prayer. And we're going to look at all of them. This is the first one that Tom just read. And what I found as I read each of the three passages in 1 Peter that deal with prayer is that there's something remarkable about them. There is a common thread running through them. So I want to read them with you and ask you to listen and see if you discern with me the remarkable common thing about these three passages of Scripture regarding prayer. So let's start with Tom did in chapter 3, verse 7. Keep your finger there. We won't have to look far for the next one. Let's read it again. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you ask yourself, what's he teaching about prayer in that verse? Second text is found in the next paragraph. We'll just walk our way up to it. It's verse 12, but, but don't jump too far ahead with me. Into verse 8, he shifts his focus off of husbands onto everybody saying that we should be brotherly and kind-hearted and humble and sympathetic. And then in verse 9, saying that we shouldn't return evil for evil, but give blessing instead of cursing. And then in verses 10, 11, and 12, he quotes Psalm 34 as a Old Testament basis or argument or foundation for this admonition to be brotherly and sympathetic and kind and not return evil for evil. And his argument goes like this. For, verse 10, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile or deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears, here it is, his ears... Attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what's he teaching about prayer here? The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. Third, chapter 4, verse 7. If you want to turn there with me. Chapter 4, verse 7 is the third text on prayer. Simple, single verse. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment 
and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer, or literally, for the sake of prayers. Now, let's step back and ask this question. What is the the unusual, remarkable, common thread running through those three passages of Scripture on prayer? I wonder what you would say. Here's what I saw. Peter is not teaching that praying helps you live right. He's teaching that the reverse is the case. Living right helps you pray in every one of those three verses. It's not untrue. It is very true that praying helps you live right. Colossians 1, 9. I pray that they might be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Oh yes, prayer helps us live right. That's not what Peter is teaching. He's teaching that when you flip it around, it's also true. Living right helps you pray or keeps your prayers from being clogged and hindered. Every one of those three texts teach that. Now let's go back. Now that I've told you what I think, let's go back and and with that, you test me, and let's look at them in a little more detail and see if you think that's right. And just what kind of living is it that helps us pray? Because my, as I read these, I thought, well, maybe what the Lord wants to do this morning is unclog our prayer lives, unhinder our prayer lives. And if Peter's bent on doing that, then I'll do it. If he says there's a way that you could change some things in your life that don't seem to have anything to do with prayer, and that would free prayer, then I'll point you to what Peter says and maybe God will do it. And maybe something brand new will happen in your prayer life because this other thing got... Fixed. You husbands, we're back at chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, a feminine one, that's the literal translation, a feminine one, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, husbands, and the rest of you can apply it in any way you think it applies, but husbands, if you want to unhinder your prayer life, if you feel like it's hindered, there's something hindering it, clogging it, blocking it, I have three suggestions from this verse. One, understand your wife. Labor in your mind and in your heart not to prejudge that you've got her figured out yet. Labor to get on the inside of her skin and understand her. Live with her in an understanding way. Second, 
have a special solicitousness. Can I use that big word? I like it. I like that word. But I'll, I'll use another one. Care. Have a special tender care for her weaknesses. Now, I've, I've preached on manhood and womanhood often enough, but probably not often enough, that everybody knows that I think there are unique male weaknesses and unique female weaknesses. Peter has his sights set here on the fact that wives have special needs that husbands are designed to meet in their strength. And if we abuse our strength not to discern those special feminine needs that only a strong husband is designed to meet, we won't get our prayers through. And so be specially tender and solicitous and caring about what makes her woman distinct from man, needing man for the completion and supplementing of her womanhood. Don't ever discern some weakness or some need and use it against her. This text would clobber you if you did that. You won't even need the text. Your prayers will shut down. Third, she is an heir, a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's going right with you into glory. She will be princess beside prince, queen beside king, into glory, honor her. See that? Honor her. Now those three things. Live with her in an understanding way. Get inside her skin. Know her. Second, a tender care, a handling gently of her womanhood. All that it means. And third, honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then you may find you're praying differently. You may find with her and alone, you're getting through. The window opened. Something changed. I was reading one of the of the good commentaries on this, and I wanted to see what some others were saying about this connection. And I read such a good one, I want to read you a paragraph. It goes like this. So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives, that He, that God, interrupts His relationship with them when they're not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will come accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity Pleasing in His sight. So there is a way to live, men. There is a way to live with our wives that clogs our prayers. And there is a way to live with her that unclogs 
our prayers. Number two, verses eight and nine tell everybody, not just husbands now, to be sympathetic and brotherly and kind hearted and humble, not to return evil for evil, but to bless. And then it gives this Old Testament reason in verses 10 to 12, and that reason comes to a climax in verse 12 with exactly the same argument as verse 7, I believe, only addressed to everybody now and not just husbands. And the point is, God has a special openness to the prayers of people who pursue peace and who whose lips are pure and who don't use guile or deceit. Here's verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's saying there is a way to live that gets the ear of God. And there is a way to live that causes God to turn his face away from your prayer. That's what verse 12 says very plainly. And if you ask, well, what is righteousness here when it says his ears or his eyes are on the righteous and his ears are toward them? The answer is turn your tongue from evil. Refrain from guile. Seek peace. Do righteousness. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. Don't return evil for evil. In other words, he's teaching exactly what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, isn't he? Remember the middle of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. See the connection? It's exactly the same thing here. Don't hold grudges. Don't return evil for evil. Forgive when you've been wronged. Otherwise, when you go to God holding a grudge, not forgiving, and say, forgive me, God will look at you funny. And say, I don't get it. I don't get it. Do you value forgiveness? Or do you not value it? If you value it, do it. If you don't, don't ask for it. And so the word on the second text is not just to husbands, it's to everybody. There's a way to live with your mouth and live with your heart that clogs your prayers. And there's a way to live that causes the Lord to beam upon your prayers. Number three, chapter four, verse seven. There are special endeavors that help our prayers be unhindered. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the sake of prayers. Sound judgment, use sound judgment and your prayers will go better. Have a sober spirit and your prayers will go better. Have sound judgment and sober spirit unto prayers. So to hear, I'm going to step back now and state the doctrine. That's what old P. 
Puritan preachers would do after they gave the exposition, they would state the doctrine. Well, here's the doctrine. Christians must endeavor to live in a way that does not hinder your prayers. That's the doctrine. Christians must endeavor to live in a way that does not hinder your prayers. It has three parts. There's the assumption that prayers can be hindered. Prayers can be clogged. Second, the thing that clogs prayers is the way you live. Husbands might live wrong with their wives. We might live wrong with each other in the church. We might not have sound judgment or sober spirits. And so our prayers get clogged. And the third part of the doctrine is you can change that. These three texts would be pointless in the Bible if there was nothing you could do about that. All three of those texts are designed to help us at the beginning of prayer week make some changes in our marriages and in our relationships and in our judgment that will make us by the end of this week more free to pray, less clogged, less hindered in our praying. The doctrine of these verses is this. A new prayer life in 1994 is not automatic. This is not automatic. I think sometimes we we get into this supernatural mode that is excessively supernatural to the point of neglecting means. And we often say prayer is a means of grace by which God uses our effort to accomplish His purposes. And now we're even backing up the step and saying, and there are means to the means. There are things you can do so that you can do more in prayer. Changes in the marriage. Changes at work. Changes in the way you think. All for prayers, which is the means of God's power in your life. There are means to the means to an effective life. And you can change those things. God right now, I believe, wants you to hear Him beckoning you to do some self-analysis so that you say, all right, it's January 2nd. I missed the first. It's all right. God's still alive. And it's the beginning of prayer week. And I can change some things. I can do something different in my life and unclog my prayers. Let me ask this question to increase your incentive, I hope, of why you'd want to do this. You you might ask the question, why should I want to unclog my prayers? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're sitting there hearing me Talk about unclogging and unhindering your prayers and and you're saying, why should I care about that? And there are a lot of answers to that question. We'll talk about a big global one next week about the effects of prayer in heaven and the effects of prayer on the whole earth and the end of the world. I mean, next week we're going to put prayer in a mega perspective. I just want to try to stir you up to care about it this morning. Here's the answer I want to give to the question, why should you care? I just, out of my struggles in this regard, I think that you should care about it because if your prayers are hindered, you're not connecting with God. 
And God himself starts to seem very distant and very unreal. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you probably, unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you're probably at home with that. I don't connect with God. I make it. In fact, I don't know what you're talking about. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work so that you would start to feel uncomfortable with being disconnected with God. But most of you here are believers. Most of you here are the children of the living God and have tasted a sweet, open, free, unhindered communion with the living God at various times, many times, some of you very regularly in your life. And I'm... I'm talking to you mainly that those of us who've tasted that unhindered communion with the living God, with his face shining rather than turned away, for us it is terrifying to think of losing it. It is a terrifying thing to have the feeling grow that you go to bed at night, you wake up in the morning, you stare at the ceiling, And you say, it isn't working. It isn't real. He's not even, I don't think, there. That's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying experience for a saint. To feel like all the bolts in your mind are coming loose And it won't hold still long enough to focus on anything, let alone God. There's just this uneasy rattling and slipping and instability. You can't connect. You can't get it down. Or to try to formulate a prayer and to feel utterly phony. Because your mind is so full of worldly stuff and earthly feelings and fleshly desires that the thought of a sweet, peaceful, unbroken, uncluttered, real connection is about as possible as flying to the moon. Now, I just ask you saints, that's a horrible thing, isn't it? That's a horrible experience. And Peter is writing these three texts so that you will escape it. So that you won't have to live that way. He wants your prayers to be unhindered. That's the point of these three texts. It may be that that changes need to be made at home. Nothing is more important, husbands, than unclogging the prayer life through mending the home life. It may be that changes need to be made in the wider circle of your relationships. Bitterness, guile, deceit have to go. It may be that simple awakenings of sobriety and sound judgment. I just think this seventh verse of chapter four is so important. 
Be of sound judgment unto prayers. Be of sober spirit unto prayers. Jesus does not kiss a drunk wife. He might pick her up and take her back to her room. He might sit by her bed. He won't kiss her. The breath of worldliness reeks to God. Jesus will not kiss a drunk bride. That is... A church that is drunk with the things of the world. My turn to give him a kiss of prayer now and then. And he will turn his face away. Nobody gets sober inadvertently. Nobody coasts into sobriety. Neither spiritual sobriety nor Physical sobriety. It happens through endeavor. Sound judgment about our lives. Sound judgment about how we spend our time. Sound judgment about the spiritual climate of your home. Sound judgment about the worldliness of your leisure. This is a great prayer stopper, folks. Went with Noel down to Orlando. Leisure land, and uh, didn't find it easy to pray. I think that's where most people live. Maximizing leisure. We hate our work, go home, turn the TV on, or get out the hobby, or anything. And uh, we live in a culture that is maximizing its effort to hinder our prayers. The music we listen to, the movies we attend, the TV we watch. Nobody sobers up from the world without taking the bottles off the shelf and throwing them out. Now I'm done. Let me close like this. There are so many ways we can help each other at this point. You know what we're going to do tonight? Tonight's called the gate. We worship the Lord together for 30 minutes or so. And then we're going to put microphones here. I have a few things to say tonight about practical steps for unhindering our prayer life. But God is going to teach the body tonight through you. And you're going to pray this afternoon. Lord, in my weakness and in my struggles and in my failures and in my successes of this past year and in my longings for 1994, what do you want me to say to the body tonight? And somebody's going to be here tonight with a heart prepared for what God put in your heart to say this afternoon. And if you don't say it, they go away unfed. I am very convinced that what's going to happen tonight is not that I will do the ministering, but that you will do the ministering. We usually do this at the end of prayer week. We don't have a service. We don't have a service at the end of prayer week this year. We have the service at the beginning of prayer week. And so tonight, after we worship the Lord and prepare our hearts in that way, God's going to come. And he's going to minister to this body. And he needs to 
um, you need to tell us about what's been hard and what's been easy, what's worked and what hasn't worked, what the needs are and what the victories are. You need a minister to the body tonight, and it may be that God's already been getting you ready for this. So I invite you back at 6 o'clock tonight. And remember, without the word, our sober judgment will not be strong. And therefore, that table over there on the other side of the commons is appointed for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the word from your apostle Peter this morning, that there are ways to live that hinder and there are ways to live that help prayer. And I pray that you would take some word and put it in the hearts of your people and multiply its effectiveness for the freedom of their prayer and the power of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.